Bienvenidos and welcome to the Voces Podcast. My name is Ana Lucia Lopez Reboredo, and I am your host. Today's guest is Marieli Luengo. Marieli was raised in a Cuban Sephardi family in Puerto Rico. She moved to the United States to partake in Georgetown University's International Diplomacy Master's Program. She began her career in development with the Goldsmith Family Fund, and since moving to Ohio, she co-founded the West Tribe, a nonprofit that serves and assists the Jewish community on the west side of Cleveland. Marieli is a sought-after nonprofit strategic consultant specializing in urban research, development, and comprehensive cultural marketing. She is the board chair of the Julia de Burgos Cultural Arts Center, is an active volunteer at the Cleveland Clinic, which specializes in NICU babies and pediatric care. And most recently, Marieli joined CNN en Español as a guest panelist and cultural commentator for art and culture in the Latinx community. Welcome, Marieli. It's great to have you here. I'm pumped for this conversation, primarily because I, I know that you love to talk about Spanglish as much as I love to talk about Spanglish. And so I really want us to just get the conversation started on that note. Uh, I'll say that Spanglish is a, is a language variety, and it means that it's been it's a hybrid, typically, of both Spanish and English. And it's a result from conversationally combining Spanish and English words. We primarily use it in the United States, but it's also used in a lot of parts of Latin America because we use a lot of English loan words, meaning English words that we now use in the Spanish language, like internet. The term Spanglish or Spanglish was first recorded in the 20th century, and it was actually one of your fellow country folk, Puerto Rican poet Salvador Tío, who first started writing with that term in the late 1940s. And so now that I have a little, that I've given a little bit of a brief history on the term, I'd love to hear from you. What is Spanglish mean to you and why does it light you up? The first books published about Spanglish was done by this Mexican Jewish uh, literature professor called Alan Stevens. I remember reading his book that he translated into Spanglish called Alicia's Aventuras in Wonderland. And I just was crying and I was crying because my brain was reading through these pages with such ease. Somewhere neurologically, my brain knew that this was going to be so easy and fast and personal to read. I need Spanglish in my life. Spanglish is the only chance that I have to ever make it in this country because I'm for sure not going to make it with just English. I know that, but that, that's how I feel. I, I live in Cleveland. The only way that you're going to find La Bodega is in Spanglish. Donde está el parque de La Bodega en la West 25th? That, that, that's the only way that you're going to get there. They're not going to know if you ask in fully English and they're for sure not going to know if you ask all in Spanish. And I love that. I, I maybe came a little too late in life to English feel like a native language, you never will. I made every error possible. I'm terrible in past tense. And, and you will think I have done my whole professional life here. So you will imagine how uh, sort of change I have been many times. And I also grew up in a house where language was really, really important. So I was raised by my aunt and she was a professor of Spanish in different subjects and proper Spanish was really, really a big deal. Just to learn that what we consider 
proper Spanish was Spaniard Spanish. And that all the dialect and the richness of the Caribbean was getting lost in this fight to have this proper way of communication. And then here in the States, I finally found my people. I found where my brain and my wires and my heart and my music and my dance work, which is Spanglish. And I am in love. I am in love with Spanglish. I'm in love with what is happening in Spanglish as a movement, as an independent language. I don't know working terms in Spanish because I have never worked in Spanish. But I also don't longer belong to the Spanish culture of the language. And I don't. That's, that is painful to say that when I open a magazine or go to an Instagram account that I will have to Google a few things because language belongs to the culture. Uh, and we don't only participate on that. We have our own thing happening here and it's magical. And I, 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 I love Spanglish. And I also believe it's so Jewish to have this relationship with language. We have done this historically. We have kept language as almost living poetry of how we interact with each other. We have bring languages from the dead, literally. And we work so hard to preserve some of the other languages. I, I'm always going to dream in Ladino. That is always going to happen. Everything Jewish for, for me, the first version was always Ladino. So that, that relationship in between Spanish, Ladino, and Spanglish, that's where I live. I also believe preserving Spanish now is a resistance to a second way of colonization. So it's not a value in your Latinidad. I don't need you to speak Spanish to determine if you, you have the Latinx car on you or not. That, that is so 1992. We don't do that anymore. We know better. But I like the partnership in preservation of not doing the mistakes that we have done before and letting it go. I, I have so many friends who don't speak Spanish, but the only music that they hear is in Spanish. Um, I have a lot of friends uh, who can read Spanish really well. And those because whatever combination of fluid it is, I believe in this alliance that this time, this time around, they're not going to take it away from us. And that comes from a very Jewish place on me. Uh, it's a linguistic resistant act, uh, Spanglish. It's like you try, you try to bury us so much. And here we're flourishing with a third thing that you could not expect. I love that symbolism of resistance in, in everyday language. I also think we're in a very exciting time with language, particular with the Spanish language. And I think that when we have another language like English in this case, to see how the same word is expressed, we're also able to pick and choose what feels the most appropriate or feels the most fitting. Wouldn't you agree? It is. And it is pushing us to uh, difficult conversations about gender and language and Spanish and all of these things, right? Like we're, we're right now debating and tussling, which I think is really healthy for our community about terms like Latinx, Latine, all of these things, right? Uh, it's not perfect. And, and we're probably never going to get in a full consensus, but just the fact that we are taking ownership and responsibility in how inclusion and fluidity go together what a luxury we have that we get to have this conversation. 
So we can agree. We love Spanglish. We'll continue to follow it. And I'm excited to see what's going to happen five years, 10 years, 20 years from now when it comes to the real literature, the expansive literature that will hopefully be uh, available for people desiring to read in Spanglish. So let's transition a little bit to the fact that you were originally from Puerto Rico. You mentioned that you lived in D.C., but now you live in Ohio. So give us a little bit of background. What took you there? I always have lived in the coast. And I lived in D.C. for so many years. And then, because of love, I ended up in a city that I think have been the biggest blessing for me personally. I love Cleveland. I really, really love Cleveland. And Cleveland have given me things that nowhere else in the country will give it to me, including a license to define my own Latinidad. And that have been really, really powerful. I hear other podcasts that you have done, and it's, um, I think we all share a story of, of how much grief happened in the process of growing our identities. And for me, in my 20s, I was so concerned about being Jewish that I did a disservice to my Latinidad. It was a price to pay that I thought back then was the only way to do it. The only way to truthfully be accepted as a Jew is if I resign my Latinidad and prove it at all costs that I will take what it means to be Jewish by the standards. Uh, and I grieve. I grow. I grieve those years that I purposely walk away from something that was impossible to, and that it just hurt me more in the long term. So I, I think what Clement have given me. It's very, very fertile grounds to be all that I am in one space. And I don't think many places in the country, or especially in the coast, allow you this much flexibility. Uh, Latinidad in Cleveland have a very long history. We have a Mexican club that have over 100 years formation in the city. We have a history of workers and farmers coming to the fields. We also have a history of factory workers who were bought, who were brought here specifically to avoid unions and labor laws. And the trick flipped on them because they unionized faster uh, than their white counterparts. So uh, Latinidad in Cleveland is yummy and it's delicious and it's rich and it's growing so fast. I'm very thankful that I ended up here. Mm. When Latinidad gets described as yummy and delicious, I mean, we got to get to Cleveland. I, I've never been to Cleveland, so I must admit. And I don't know how many people that are listening have been to Cleveland, but you're selling it pretty hard right now. <laughs> And, and I'm curious, like, you kind of give us a little bit of some perspective of what it's like to be Latino in Cleveland, what it's like to be Latinx in Cleveland. What is it like to be Jewish in Cleveland? Uh, Judaism in Cleveland is strong. We have a very giving community, uh, actually a very powerful federation. So Jewish community already exists here. I was really welcome, but I was not going to make the mistakes I did in McKinsey. I was dedicated to the idea that I was going to build a community with my values, my principles, with people that look like me and talk like me and feel like me. So the city of Cleveland is divided by the river, like many cities, east and west. Most Jews live in the east side. I, of course, live in the west side. And it happened to be this beautiful territory where 
what I define as the future of Judaism live. Very, very multiracial, interfaith families, families who reject the traditional ways of Judaism, who want community, but don't want it the way that always have been done. And these are my neighbors and these are my friends. And we, in the innovation way to organize ourselves, have find ourselves in a very rewind to the past methods to do it, where we call ourselves like a modern kibbutz, right? And thankfully, so many things uh, and organizations like us happening around the globe. It's, it's a dream come true, Jewish community. We're so good to each other and it's so diverse and it's so Jewish. I can tell how much you love Cleveland and it's really beautiful to hear. I think you even surprised yourself, <laughs> uh, but I'm not surprised. I mean, it sounds like an incredible city, uh, lots of lights, lots of water, and also a very rich history. So for folks who might just be learning about the Jewish community in Cleveland now, uh, the Jewish community began to take formation in 1839 with immigrants from Southern Germany in Bavaria arriving to the state of Ohio. Of course, it's grown significantly since then. And in the early 21st century, Ohio's census data reported that there were nearly 150,000 Jews living in the state, with Cleveland being home to more than 50% of that population. As of 2018, Cleveland is the 23rd largest Jewish community in the United States. So not surprised to hear of West Side's existence. And as you just mentioned, the beautiful success and the need that the community has for something in their own backyard. So really congrats to you and everyone involved for helping bring that to life. I'd love for you to give us a little bit more of an insight as to how being on the West side, being in isolation probably from the rest of the different Jewish communities in Cleveland, uh, what has that experience been like? A lot of what we have to do is in secret because a lot of our families are afraid to be Jewish in public. Uh, because the levels of anti-Semitic behavior and anti-Semitic behavior is so high. And when they come to me and they're like, I want my kid to be Jewish, but I carry this guilt. Nobody in my work knows I'm Jewish. I just come back to my own family. I'm like, oh, I completely got you. Like, I know this dynamic. <laughs> I, I know this uh, place in between. Do it healthy? Of course not. Do we have to work really hard to change it? Yes, but it's very real for a lot of the families that I serve. And I, I don't think that's something that the coast grab it very well. When the Tree of Life massacre happened, a, a lot of our families went and hide. Right. No, I get it. Oh, I, 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 it totally makes sense. Um, and for folks who don't realize or who haven't known this before, Pittsburgh and Cleveland are two major cities that are only about two hours apart meaning that obviously something that happens in Pittsburgh will greatly affect the sentiment and the feeling of Ohio. If something takes place or something happens to the Jewish community in Pittsburgh, it's of course going to be felt in Cleveland and vice versa. It was, and we all have different reactions, right? And uh, we were very thankful that our federation just got in the car and went and helped. And we're always going to be very proud of that and be able to do that. Uh, it, it, was, it was shocking. For sure, it have consequences that we still feel today. We have a very progressive side of town, right? It's called Oberlin, a very big university. They are very big Jewish life. And yet we are perfectly aware that five miles, literally five miles away, 
is a clan hate group organized well-known hotspot. So we are always hyper-conscious about our students going there. We're hyper-conscious of when we drive. And I don't want to teach and I don't want to live in a Judaism veil of trauma. I think that is something that our ancestors did because they have to and we don't, thankfully. And I want to teach Judaism and I want to live Judaism without it. I want to acknowledge that happened. I don't want it to be the base and the reason for why. I'm not a Jewish educator and I don't want to be one, but I live Judaism and I build Jewish communities and I refuse them to be out of trauma. I, we have so much more that we are besides that. And I, and, I, and I look at my grandparents, right? That's all the Judaism that my grandparents knew. It was to hide, <laughs> to minimize, to, to hope and pray that we not get us killed. I am very thankful for their legacy. I would not repeat it. I would not. Whew. Amen to that. And there's so much to process there. I mean, I think we can spend a whole other hour talking about how trauma has become a piece of our cultural identity. And there's avid work to, you know, to confront trauma, but to not be defined by it. And so I really, really appreciate the words that you're saying. And I think uh, so does your community, which is why it's been so successful and which is why you've built the trust and the love you've built amongst the families that partake in West Tribe. Share with us a tidbit about West Tribe that you just feel so proud of that you feel like everyone needs to know. We have a very, very homemade backyard Jewish summer camp. And when I tell you homemade, I'm telling you that Jewish summer camp industry will have scream at us if they see how backyard, raggedy, homemade this summer camp was this past year. And Lucia, I'm telling you, it was A, a capacity because everybody wants to be there. Two, uh, <laughs> the kids are still talking about it and this is the third year that we do it. We have 47 kids, only 47 kids. We have three transgender kids in the 47 group. We have 14 black Jewish students in this group. And we have nine Latinx Jewish students in this group. And this is in Cleveland, Ohio. And we only achieve that diversity because we have invested in the trust. We have made ourselves a safe place to be your authentic self. We have made a self place for understanding. We have made a self place for Jewish identity to live. I take so much pride, right, in that. Some, some camps, one age gap will be 47 students. One cabin will be 47 students. But for us, it's all of our kids. And I really mean it when I like, they're our kids. I could not be more happy. And I yes, I built it. I helped to build it. It's in my hands, my fingerprints are all over. And my leadership is not necessary for this to exist. And that has been very important for me. I think good leadership comes with that exit tragedy. Could this exist without you? These kids will most likely, from these 47, most of them, this is their first and only Jewish summer camp experience. It's not a lot of us, but we're for sure a family. We know each other really intimately. I don't care if they never pay membership. I just need them to belong. And they do. I, I can hear the pride in your voice and you should be proud. You and the rest of the West Tribe families 
should be so proud of what you're creating collectively, as you say, uh, which is what makes a community. It's, it's collective action. And the fact that there's 47 students, there's 47 young folks who are attending camp and which is more than what you're saying is that capacity, but that's because people want to be there. I mean, it shows a lot. And so what if it doesn't follow the exact vibe or structure that any other Jewish summer camp does? It doesn't make it any less Jewish and it doesn't make it any less of a summer camp. You know, it seems like kids are having a blast. So congratulations to you and, and to the families. And I really wish, I wish you all continued love and, you know, success is all based out of love. So really, I wish you just continued love. As we uh, kind of wrap up in our conversation, there's been something that I've really enjoyed having at the center of these conversations. And that's giving people the opportunity to also express themselves in their first language. And you are someone with many talents. You recently became a cultural commentator for CNN en Español. Wow. I have to say, it's pretty amazing. And if you're interested in sharing with us a little bit about that, perhaps if you're interested in sharing it in Spanish, we'd love to know what it is that got you into that world and what it is that you love about this opportunity to be in such a public and visible space with the Spanish-speaking media. En otras palabras, cuéntanos de, de la manera como es que llegaste a ser periodista con CNN en español y qué es lo que más te entusiasma de esta oportunidad. No, no me considero periodista, no estudié eso, pero me encanta el concepto de dar un mensaje. Me encanta el storytelling que hay que dar para vender algo. Me encanta llenarnos de orgullo. De, me encanta sacar estas historias de lo mucho que estamos haciendo y produciendo. La economía de este país está en los hombros de la mujer latina. Y qué poco estamos hablando de eso, ¿no? Y bueno, y para mí el concepto de cultura es lo que define cómo nos movemos, qué hacemos, qué compramos, qué, qué doctor vamos, cómo votamos. Y, y tengo un rol como presidenta del Centro Cultural de Clima Hispano y, y, y todo eso formuló para yo ser un panelista, parte de un documental que estamos dejando, parte de este legado, ¿no? Y, y quiero hablar de eso. Y específicamente con las cosas de cultura latina, nosotros consumimos tanta cultura en este país y damos tanto y tenemos tanto talento y aún así la representación siempre está menos del 20, 25%, ¿no? Y después está todos los problemas de representación. Cuando finalmente tenemos un rol, ¿cuál es? Cuando finalmente son publicados, ¿por qué es? ¿no? Ah, so todas estas subculturas de latinidad me, me parecen divinas. Oh, thank you, Marieli. Eres divina. <laughs> Muchas gracias por todo. It's been such a pleasure to chat with you. And I'm so grateful that you're part of our community, that you're creating community, that you're bridging concepts in your roles as a philanthropic advisor, as a community builder, as a cultural commentator. You're doing so much. And I hope that you recognize the power and the influence that you have to spread love, to spread joy, and to spread pride, that Latin Jewish pride. So, mil gracias. Thank you, Marieli. 
Your story is a reminder that no two Latin Jewish stories are alike. And therefore, it is important that we continue to elevate as many Latin Jewish stories as possible. To all of our listeners, thank you for your love and encouragement. We are thrilled to be back for a second season, and we wouldn't have been able to do this without your support. New episodes will be released every Friday from October 1st through December 17th. For more information, please visit jutina.org. Until next time, ciao!